the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. In 1979, The Residents, a band or art collective, what have you, released the album Eskimo, a strange but beautiful record that tells a fictitious story loosely based on Inuit culture. They use sounds, musical instruments, and mumbling gibberish, but no actual words. And yet, if you turn out the lights and listen to it front to back, it tells an incredible emotive story, an album unlike any other. Eskimo was just one of the residents' many albums over the past 50 years, and all are highly creative and weird. Their entire approach to being a band was to always challenge the very idea of being a band. They have remained completely anonymous their entire career, even as they've popularized the image of themselves with top hats and eyeballs for heads. And they've continuously pushed music video and recording technology forward in surprisingly creative ways. Our guest today is Homer Flynn, president of the Cryptic Corporation, who will speak on behalf of the residents. And though the residents are not ska, they were the band that opened up both Adam and I to the great wide world of weird music. And we definitely ask Homer if the residents like ska. But regardless of all that, the residents completely defy all musical genres. Most bands fit into a genre. Residents? No genre. They're their own genre. It's so ridiculous for us to have a podcast called In Defense of Ska and talk to the residents, but we both love the residents. We get to make the rules, and we wanted the residents on. And when did you start listening to the residents? It was in high school. I heard about them because Primus was covering them, and then I got their album, 
And that just was like a rabbit hole for me to just dig deeper into this, into not first their catalog and then other music that was just, you know, just beyond weird, you know? And then you made me a mixtape from those albums. And I think receiving a mixtape of The Residents, which is already pretty out there music, but then when you take a couple albums and scramble them together on a mixtape, I think it makes it even more surreal. The Residents is a complicated concept. I wouldn't mind if you explained who you were and what your relationship was to The Residents. Sure. Um, I am Homer Flynn. I am president of the Cryptic Corporation. Um, Cryptic is the business um, promotional interface and uh, babysitters for the residents. Um, Mm -hmm. The residents are a music and performance and really multimedia act that dates back to 1972. Uh, The most notable thing about them, or one of the more notable things, is that um, they have worn a mask of anonymity never revealing their faces or their names for almost 50 years now. And in, in addition to managing them, I am their longtime graphics and visual person. So I've done most of their album covers um, and have a lot of done a lot of their photos and art directed most of the other stuff. The visual element, the album covers and stuff are, are such a key component to the residents too. I, definitely feel like like a big fan of that element of the band yeah cool uh well uh that's mostly my work i mean (laughs) when the residents started they had a very um strong point of view that they wanted to be as visually interesting as they were musically or sound wise and so i've kind of done the best i could to to uphold that when i discovered the residents in the early 90s as a teenager and i feel like it was my first real gateway into weirder music because I was into other stuff like, um, you know, Fishbone and Skank and Pickle and, and Primus. And, and, and I'm not ashamed to admit that Primus was my uh, gateway into Residence because they were such huge advocates for Residence and they would play Constantinople and Hey Skinny on stage. And so it, it piqued my curiosity but it also coincided with when I started going to the the, the more interesting record stores because I grew up in Gilroy, so San Jose. There was record stores in San Jose, and get like that, they had all the resident stuff, and that was the only place I could find it. And that all the the album art and the music, it was all very very interesting and weird and mysterious to me. And uh, that was definitely like the beginning for me of getting into music that was dip, more off the beaten path. The first album too was Duck Stab, which is um, very weird and unsettling, but is like arguably the most accessible record that the residents did. What do you think? Yeah, um, I mean, you're, you're echoing a lot of things that I've heard from other people. Um, Primus has certainly led a lot of people to the residents, and <clears throat> Duck Stab is definitely definitely seen as one of their more accessible things. Um, you may or may not be aware that, you know, they just did a uh, duck stab program for Night Flight Plus. Um, and um, Night Flight was kind of the other place where uh, so many people have told me that over the years that they were first introduced to the residents. My entry point for it was watching MTV 
And I think the video from Moisture came on after a Cure video, which <laughs> completely blew my mind because I was really into the Cure at the time. But then all of a sudden there was this one minute long, very, very weird, very cinematic thing. And then I can't remember, Aaron, if it was you or the guitar player in your band, but one of you made me a mixtape that was, uh, it was parts of the, I think the King and I album mm -hmm. and then maybe two or three other albums. And it was just a, a mixtape of just the residents. And it was even <laughs> yeah. more disorienting because it was a mix of different albums. And there's so much, I mean, in, in the early nineties, there was already so much residence music. Yeah, that was definitely me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure if it was you or Mike, you know, once I got into the residence, I got stuff that was from all the different eras. So yeah, I had King and I, which is all Elvis Presley covers and, uh, but very weird. And then Duck Stab is like, has its own sound. And then there's the commercial album, which I really liked a lot too. So, and then God in Three Persons, for some reason that album was like, I listened to that one all the time. Very unusual album, like a story that's hard to understand exactly what's happening, but it makes sense in a weird way. So Homer, I just wanted to back up a little bit for the listeners. Like how did something like The Residents wind up on MTV? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, honestly, because MTV was desperate for uh, programming when uh -huh. they first started, and uh, and and the residents had stuff. Um, most notably, the the third rock and roll uh, video, and you know the the third rock and roll video had created a certain notoriety for itself because it was teamed. Um, with Devo's, um, I think their satisfaction, one of their really early videos, mm -hmm. um, and, and was also, uh, teamed with, uh, David Lynch, um, Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. So that, that was like a, a kind of a standard midnight movie that would play different places around, um, so it, it had a certain amount of notoriety already when MTV started and they were desperate for programming. So that's kind of the way it worked out. That's so interesting. I mean, your videos, Devo's videos, and I would even argue Weird Al Yankovic's videos are early, were all early in MTV and they were all like very funny and artistic and, and like still hold up, you know. They're not like they're not like these throwaway little video promotions. Yeah, well, and and you know, the in any use that MTV had for the residents has long since vanished. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, we're not going to see residents on MTV in twenty twenty one. I mean, <laughs> I, honestly, the last thing that I can really remember was maybe the "It's a Man's World" video, um, which would have been about mid um, mid eighties. Uh, there could be other stuff after that. I really don't know, but not that I, not that I know of. I would love to hear a little bit about um, the Hello Skinny video. I feel like the third Reich and Roll video, you mentioned that. That's definitely a very interesting video and it has an interesting story. But I would love to know a little bit about the Hello Skinny video because that is like, that is an amazing kind of terrifying video. Um, well, the residents um, and Cryptic at that time were working with a guy named Graham Whistler. And um, Graham not only directed Hello Skinny, he also directed uh, 
oh, uh, MX-80 video, uh, Tuxedo Moon, and then the uh, Ronaldo in the Loaf uh, music video. And, uh, and he was extremely talented filmmaker. And um, at one point, um, he started working on a project that was potentially a feature. Ultimately, you know, Cryptic did not, was, to be honest, was not happy with the direction that he was going with it. And uh, so that project got shut down. But um, the guy who played Skinny was heavily featured in that um, aborted project. So uh, Graham then um, shifted, uh, used a lot of the stuff that he had shot for that, and then brought the Skinny character back again and edited it into the Hello Skinny video. And so it had a very kind of strange convoluted path, but um, obviously the, the result is brilliant. I I'd heard that the, that guy was from a um, mental institution. Is that? Um, you know, that's, that's part of the legend. And um, I think that's true. Or, or at least shall we say he was, he was having serious mental problems. And, um, if you notice in that video, um, there are shots of him, you know, used to be, um, like in a Greyhound bus station, you had these kind of like little kiosk things where you could sit in a chair in front of a TV and you could like put a quarter in or, or, or whatever and watch TV for 30 minutes. I mean, it seemed like a very kind of primitive, uh, concept at this point, but they were pretty popular. And um, ultimately, there are shots of him. And, and more, more of the story is that how much of this is true or not, I don't know. But this is the way it was told to me. Everybody called him Bridget um, because he thought he was Bridget Bardot. Um, and if you can imagine anybody much further from Bridget Bardot, uh, he would be mighty, maybe in your top 10. Um, <laughs> but the, the story was that Bridget, uh, Graham was trying to shoot a little more stuff with Bridget in, in order to uh, have what he needed to, to finish the Hello Skinny video. And so he shot him uh, one night just before he was ready to get on the bus to go back to live with his mother. And, uh, and that was the story is that he, that those images of him sitting there looking at that TV in the bus station, he was waiting on a bus, um, to go back to live with his mom. And, uh, and that's honestly the last we ever heard of him. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. That, yeah, that video. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was all true because it just feels unsettling watching it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't really, uh, I was around him a little bit. Uh, I can't say that I can remember ever having had a conversation with him. I mean, he was, he was very, um, shy, I guess, uh, certainly very withdrawn. So the Duckstab album was, um, was something that the residents put together, as they were trying to, as they were basically taking a break from trying to finish Eskimo, right? Right. That's, that's correct. Um, 
you know, the Eskimo album took four years to make. And honestly, um, about three and a half years of that, three to three and a half years was, was experiments. They, they, they had a concept in mind in terms of what they were trying to do. They just couldn't find the door. They couldn't find a way to, to take this stuff and make stories out of sounds. Like they couldn't find a way to make that work. And um, so they experimented and experimented. And then the majority of once they finally got it, uh, the majority of the album was done in about six months. But, um, you know, they had times of getting frustrated and, and um, ultimately just wanted a break from it. And at the same time, Ralph Records was going, yeah, take a break. We need some product. Uh, <laughs> so it was that it was that combination of needing a break and uh, and, and Ralph wanting product that created Duck Stab. And, you know, the residents always had fragments of music around. And sometimes those would come together in, in the form of an album or some kind of project. Sometimes they just floated around, drifted around for a long time. So uh, when they got ready to, to do Duck Stab, and once again, you know, at this point, Duck Stab is, is an LP, but originally it was just a uh, an EP, just, I don't know, 15, 16 minutes long, something like that. So they put that together from fragments um, that they had, and then they wrote some amount of new stuff. And then also, too, around that time, Snakefinger, I think, had been living in L.A., and all of a sudden he popped up, and he was, you know, they always enjoyed working with him. He, he was had a great energy about him, and, and so all those things kind of come to get, came together to to create Duck Stab. And so it's technically called Duck Stab Buster Glenn is the is the full technical name because it's two EPs put together, but most of us just refer to it as Duck Stab. Yeah, it, the whole idea. I mean, Duck Stab was an unexpected hit. Um, it, it sort of came out timing wise, the perfect time for when punk slash new wave was very in. And um, so that allowed Ralph Records to come in and market, uh, market it under a kind of a, a new wave banner. And they, they just flew out the door. And um, but Ralph, you know, we always felt like um, you know, we're not going to be able to market this thing long term as a, as an EP. We really need some kind of uh, more conventional LP uh, product for it. So, um, so we encourage the residents to to create the, the second EP, which they call Buster and Glenn, and uh, that then became side two. Yeah, it's funny because I mean, you're right. I mean, like some of the stuff that was kind of getting popular at that time, like or, you know, had an audience like uh, Suicide or, or Periubu. I mean, it was pretty weird. So it, it was like kind of interesting timing that the residents, even though I feel like the residence is still weirder <laughs> and comes from a little different place, it's still like it kind of seemed like, oh, okay, this all kind of makes sense together. Third Reich and Roll and then Eskimo and stuff. These are very, these have like concepts behind them and stuff. Duck Stab and Buster and Glenn, was there really no concept behind it as a as a release? No, not really. I mean, you know, it's more like, you know, let's go in the studio and have some fun. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think there was any more concept to it than that. 
What's funny is like, I was so into this album in high school that when I was a senior and I was in a creative writing class, I actually brought in Blue Rosebuds. That's the song I brought in, just the lyrics. And I read that as an example of poetry that I liked. The the teacher was like really taken with it. And I had students coming up to me going like, where, what's the, what is this? You know, where, where did you get these words? And I was like, it's the residence. And I like made some mixtapes for people. <laughs> I'm just going to read, I'm going to read a little bit just to give people a sense of how amazing this is as poetry. Your words are empty, hollow bleedings of a mental crutch. They're open festered indigestion with a velvet touch An ether eating Eskimo would gag upon your sight convulsed into oblivion from laughter or from fright. And then I could go on, but just, just that alone, I feel like really illustrates. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, in the same way that they had fragments of music just kind of floating around, they also had fragments of poetry and, and, and text. And, uh, and, and once together, they, they, they wanted to put this thing out. Uh, they went into this kind of frenzy of recording and they were just grabbing whatever they could find. Um, now, you know, they, they would also take these fragments and say, okay, well, that's not quite right. So they would rewrite things a little bit. I mean, you know, and they, they, they still do that. Did these songs, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but did, did, um, did the lyrics of these songs have like deep meaning to them or were they like stream of conscious, like specifically the songs off of Duck Stab and Buster and Glenn? Honestly, I think they're more stream of consciousness. Um, you know, there are probably certain things here or there that may have more meaning to them. Um, I think I think Sinister Exaggerator, which you just which you just quoted, uh, that was that was written with someone in mind. Um, but uh, you know, once again, it's uh, incredibly exaggerated uh to, to say the least uh, but but most of them i think were more kind of stream of consciousness just trying to put together interesting series and sets of words that uh, felt intriguing i want to talk a little about eskimo um adam what was your in when did you first hear eskimo because i actually didn't hear eskimo until after i had already heard a bunch of them i'm not sure why i skipped over that one but then i heard it a little as a little older person i was totally blown away what about you? I think some of our friends uh, used to like to put on Eskimo and and turn off all the lights and make kind <laughs> of a, a happening of it. And so I would hear more about people listening to Eskimo than actually listening to it. And then a couple of years ago, I was able to get a repress of it. And it's such an interesting album to me because I feel like it's so accessible, but so weird at the same time. And I don't feel it's not an album where you can just put on a song <laughs> yeah. and listen to it. You listen to it at the beginning and you listen to it until it ends. <laughs> yeah. um, Homer, so you, you spoke that it, it took about four years to find the door to get into this and then and then another six months to record it. What was the process like and what was the intention of the residents making this album? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to preface that by you, you're talking about people, you know, late at night and playing it. My, my, my favorite story, I mean, the residents love to hear about um, people uh, finding different uh, interpretations or ways to uh, enjoy their music. And my favorite story is that um, my ex-wife uh, used to love to put the speakers in the window of our house 
blaring outside <laughs> on Halloween and scare kids with it. <laughs> I think I've done that exact same thing. Well, I mean, perfect use. I mean, the residents absolutely love that. Um, you know, the intention, the idea behind it, and, and there were a couple of things happening, but the primary intention was to be able to create an album that told stories, but told stories exclusively in sound. The residents essentially wanted this to be coming from a very alien place. And at that time, they were really starting to get into a lot of um, ethnic music, what, what became ultimately marketed as world music. So they had a lot of um, interest there. And that's what pointed them, you know, in, in the direction of a, you know, pseudo-ethnic culture. But um, what they did was they, they picked the Eskimos or the Inuit people because that was the, that was the furthest out thing that they could find uh, that nobody could <laughs> point at and say, no, that's not right. They don't sound like that. Uh, and and th they chose the, um, the polar Eskimos because they would be so completely cut off and isolated and there was and there seemed to have been at least at that time so little known about them that it, it kind of gave them uh carte blanche you know to do whatever they wanted to um as, as, as long as it had shadings of authenticity about it uh and so that that's that was the direction or the idea that they pursued throughout the whole record kind of between the songs there's this whooshing arctic wind sound that ties i feel like ties the whole recording together and i feel like when you put the record on it immediately makes whatever room you're listening to it in 20 degrees colder it drops the temperature i mean i've been i've listened i listened to it today and it's a nice warm day and i put it on and i felt like i needed to go get a sweater it it really evokes this feeling of cold and this kind of desolate environment inhabited by these people yeah well that's that's great to hear because what you're talking about that's exactly the response that uh that the residents wanted uh and you know it even says in the liner notes you know to put on wrap yourself in a blanket before you put this on uh, and uh so that's great that's cool was there any sort of backlash creating this kind of fictional version of the inuit people no, not really. But once again, the, the residents were, were pretty good at selecting an ethnic group that nobody knew enough about <laughs> gotcha. to, to, to be able to uh, point fingers and go, no, that's, that's not right. And, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, to the degree that you're aware of the, the kind of experiments, sound experiments they were doing, like what kind of things they would do to create sounds and, and what things worked and didn't work? I mean, one one of my favorite stories is, uh, oh, I think it's the witch doctor. I'm forgetting now what they call him. Um, you know, the ice is everywhere, and uh, and so he calls in a uh, like a kind of like a typhoon or something to to come in and 
wipe out all the ice so they have access to the basically the, the prey animals that they kill. Uh, and at some point, they, they kill a seal in it. Well, maybe, actually, maybe it's the walrus hunt. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of is the yeah. walrus hunt instead, where they, they, they harpoon uh, the walrus. And, um, and ultimately, what they, what they did was they, they found a cardboard box and they beat on the cardboard box as the, as the <laughs> walrus that's being killed. And there was just something that so ultimately delighted them about this cardboard box that was laying around their studio becoming a dead walrus. <laughs> Did they keep it? Uh, well, uh, for a while, for a while, but logs <laughs> just departed. Um, but they would, they would try anything. Um, you know, the, the wind of course is all uh, synthesizer. Uh, it's completely synthetic. What about all the, all the chanting and, and the, the vocals on it? I mean, some of it sounds like it might be sped up or backmasked. But it's all it's all really interesting and really evocative. And there's certain parts where it sounds like you can almost understand what's being said, and then it slips away. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Part of the the story, in terms of if you read the liner notes, mm-hmm. um, it, it basically it says that you know the polar Eskimos, which this is uh, romanticizing. Um, no longer exists, and um, you know now they sit around and watch TV, <laughs> uh, like far too many other people. And um, so, as it moves towards the end of the album and goes from uh, pure fantasy land, romanticized Eskimo reality to f- fantasized, romanticized. Eskimo present, um, the chants become uh, very kind of distorted versions of TV commercials. Uh, it's like, you know, one of them is uh, Coke's uh, slogan of the time, you deserve a break today. And uh, if you start listening, you can hear them going, you deserve a break today. Um, and I think another one is a Toyota commercial, uh, and ultimately there's a there's a you know on the uh, you know they they did an Eskimo DVD, um, which came out about twenty years after the album, and uh, there's a point in the DVD in this same uh, section, you know where. Uh, kind of spacing it out right now, but it's in the same section of the album and um, and ultimately something shifts and transforms and, you know, it's a polar bear, but it's a polar bear holding a coat. <laughs> uh, so so that's, that's really what all those chants were about, at least in the end section. That's amazing. That's so cool to hear. So that, that's kind of a good segue to talk about the... Um commercial album i feel like 40 songs all one minute long correct correct yeah and all so bizarre (laughs) but like they're only a minute long so i feel like it's such a good entry point for the residents because you can you can literally just put one of these songs on 
and even if somebody is completely put off by it, it's only a minute. Right. Some of the songs naturally end at one minute and some of the songs feel so obviously forced to be exactly a minute. (laughs) Oh, which I I love. I love the idea of just cutting a song to make it fit. Can you speak a little bit to the the concept that was... came behind the uh the commercial album well there, there there were a couple of things behind that once again there was kind of a massive sense of relief in terms of having finally completed and released eskimo and they wanted something that was completely different you know now for something completely different and um at the same time they kind of liked the idea of satirizing commercial music um, both from the point of view of commercializing what got played on the on the radio, but also music uh, that would get played on commercials. So the whole idea of doing these short songs, they felt like so much commercial music, music that would get played on the radio, was just um, bloated. Um, you know, it's got... It'll have like maybe one or two good ideas on there, and then it gets stretched out for three or four minutes. Uh, if it's MacArthur Park, it gets stretched out to <laughs> a 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Um, and so once again, they were kind of in, in their own uh, humorous way, pointing fingers at uh, commercial music and saying, you know, no, it doesn't have to be that long. We'll give you, yeah, you know, at least one or two ideas, maybe four or five in a minute, uh, and then we'll go on to something yeah. else completely different. So um, that was a lot of their their thoughts, uh, you know, towards how what their motivation was in terms of doing that. So, am I right in remembering this too? That like Eskimo, as as strange as it is, as it is, did surprisingly well both critically and sales, but commercial album actually didn't do as well. Am I remembering that correctly? Well, you know, I think the commercial album may not have done quite as well as Eskimo, um, but both of them did did fairly well. I mean, the main thing with Eskimo is that, uh, you know, once again, it took it took four years to do it. So Ralph Records was promoting it for that entire four years. Oh. So um, by the time it finally came out there was an audience that uh, had heard about this and was interesting and intrigued. And once again, this sort of came out around a peak, came out in 1979. It's kind of a a peak of uh, new wave. (laughs) You certainly can't refer to Eskimo as punk, (laughs) but um, (laughs) sort of a a, a peak of new wave interest. Uh, And the, the cool thing about new wave was that you know, anything goes. Uh, and the residents had no problem fitting under that umbrella. Um, so, but I, I think from the point of view of, I mean, es- Eskimo was, was strange, but it was, it, it was very well explained. Um, you know, when you got the album, each, each story told you exactly what was happening in text. So it was very easy. You would listen to this um, and it was very weird, but every sound kind of made sense within the context of the story that was told in the liner notes. Whereas 
the commercial album was kind of like a little too commercial on one hand. I mean, it, it, it brought about comparisons to commercial music while completely uncommercial because the song would quit after one minute. And um, <laughs> I think basically reviewers just didn't know what to do with that. Uh, so uh, while it's certainly gained a following over the years, I think maybe the, the media response was, was kind of more like, what the fuck is this? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but, but sales, as I remember, sales were, were not, were not, were not horrible. Um, you know, maybe not what people, maybe not what we expected, but uh, I, don't, I don't remember them being terrible. With Eskimo, um, like it flows together so well. Yeah, I know it, it, there was a lot of time spent figuring out how to do it, but was it recorded in any way where they were together or was it each piece still like recorded separately and then all mixed together? No, they were pretty much working in, a st- in their own studio at that time. Uh, and, they, and they weren't necessarily all in there together at once, but they had their own studio and, and everything was recorded there. I see. So they weren't necessarily playing at the same time or each sound? Were they, were they doing each sound separately in the recording process? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the epitome of a studio album. Um, so, you know, one of the sounds that they use to create this uh, fictional uh, culture is the Eskimo band. And, uh, and of course, they made up all the instruments for them. Um, I mean, like they, they play a, a xylophone uh, type instrument, which I think was some kind of African in- instrument that they had found. But they, they say it's an Eskimo instrument made up of frozen fish. Um, and, and so they, they would jam um, a, a lot of the uh, sounds of the Eskimo band that kind of filter in and out of it uh, or, or jams that they did in the studio. Are there any other the instrument combinations that you, you remember that they were using? Um, you know, they had something... I don't even know what it was or where it came from, but there was, there was a kind of a koto like instrument, like a, like a very kind of Japanese stringed instrument. And, um, I think, um, I I think that plays, um, you know, there's the one where, um, the woman, um, has a breakdown and, uh, and things get, even even crazier than the album normally is, and um, and I think Snakefinger came in and played this kind of koto thing as like background for her. Um, you know, she's like washing her clothes, and you know, you would, they they would wash clothes by beating them on the rocks or something like that, and um, and then somehow she just gets possessed by some kind of. Uh, paranoid fantasy or or whatever and, and winds up going to super crazy land um but uh and then when she the, then the the eskimo men come and gather around her and do a chant to kind of like bring her back and then and then when she when they bring her back from that well then you get the sound of this like koto thing again um but yeah they had some kind of 
weird horn instruments that they would would play uh, that was that were supposed to be like walrus horns or Norwell horns or something like that. Um, yeah, uh, they were looking really for as kind of ethnic and or authentic sounding things that they could find or or make on their own. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's one of my favorite things in listening to a lot of the residents' recordings are are the you can tell that it's it's an acoustic instrument being played, but it's being played not in the way that you would expect it to be played, or it's something that when you hear it, you can't really imagine what it is that you're hearing. I mean, I especially like the way uh horn parts get implemented where they all are kind of rather than being, you know, set up in like a harmony or playing in unison they're all kind of playing like a little bit off from each other and you end up with like a weird dirge sort of sound. Can you speak to any of that sort of uh, composition element that they employed? Um, well, you know, I, I think a lot of that just comes from their own naivete and ignorance and incompetence in terms of being able to actually play. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, back at that time, they were uh, huge Sun Ra fans, and um, and Sun Ra, it, it, at least in terms of horns and using horns, uh, was was a big influence on them. Um, but Sun Ra was also a big influence on them in terms of of performance. Uh, you know, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever saw Sun Ra or not, but going to a Sun Ra show, uh, well, I mean, you know. Not not unlike a resident show, they, they they did a good job of of you go to a resident show and and from their point of view they want you to feel like you almost stepped into another dimension. You when you walk in a, a venue or a, a theater or whatever where they're playing, they they want you to feel like they've transported you somewhere else. And you know they got that from Sunra. That's exactly what a Sunra uh, show felt like. Yeah, the first time I saw Residence um, was in late 90s, and uh, I went with a friend of mine, and uh, he, like, he had to get high before he went in, and I remember thinking, you don't need to get high for this experience. You're going to (laughs) feel, you're going to feel transported regardless. Yeah, well, that's certainly the idea. (laughs) Beyond the music and and the set dressing, were there any other elements that the residents would employ to create a, an atmosphere in these spaces? Well, I mean, you know, um, they would have their own walk-in music and walk-out music, uh, as well as intermission music for shows that had an intermission. I mean, and, and the whole idea was that as soon as you walked in, you, you, would, you would hear their music, you, the, the sound environment. Uh, was being shaped or molded from the moment that you walked in and 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 left. I love that. Yeah, I, I recall too when I saw the second time I saw Resonance was in the Rio in Santa Cruz and in the lobby there was um like performers, like lobby performers that were very much in the vein of Resonance, like kind of bizarre. And that was like a definitely like what you're talking about. It's like you're you're put into the environment, you're put into the the spirit of the residents immediately. Yeah, the the Rio is great. Um, the, the residents have enjoyed uh, a really um, fruitful 
uh, and fertile relationship with the Rio going back at least 15 years, maybe maybe more than that. And uh, they, they have been incredibly uh, generous in terms of offering the theater, uh, you know, for, for the group to come down, sometimes as long as four or five days or maybe even a week to just kind of set up camp in the theater and, and, do, and do final rehearsals and then often do a performance there. And then the, the tour bus would come and pick them up right at the Rio and then boom, they're gone. Uh, but it's, it's been a really great relationship. Eskimo commercial, and that's where you're, really, you're starting to see the eyeball and top hat image first or you know in terms of the other albums right before that it was a moving target it, you never saw who the residents were it was always four people but it wasn't a single image but then you started to see the eyeball with top hat can you tell us a little bit about wh- where that image came from and and did you have any any role in that image um yeah i mean i, I mean ultimately i was the one that was given the job of uh getting that done um, and interestingly, you know, the, their residents initial concept was that every time something new came along, it was going to have a new faceless image. And, you know, if you, if you look back to the seventies, <clears throat> you can see the, you know, the newspapers, people, newspaper suits, uh, from third Reich and roll, uh, there was, uh, a bunch of photos that were shot uh, in a safe way with them wearing asbestos suits. Yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. There's another one with them having like box silhouette and boxes on top of their head, kind of in front of, uh, um, Mount Rushmore. Uh, there were just all these different ones. And so when it came time for Eskimo, they wanted something that once again, they wanted something different, but, but very striking and, and, and original. Uh, so the, the initial idea was that what they wanted was, um, like silver globes, you know, almost, almost like, um, Christmas ornaments or something, uh, but, you know, big enough to cover your head and, and, and with a top hat. And, uh, so, um, so, so I went down to LA and started, talking to costume manufacturers and creators. And in general, people, people kept saying, uh, no, that's just, it's not going to work that, you know, people, you get, they can't breathe inside there. They can't see. And, and it, and it will all fog up. Uh, and so I just took that information, went back and started talking to the residents and, uh, and somewhere in there, somebody comes up with the idea, okay, well, if we can't make it a silver globe, what if we made it like a giant eyeball? And um, <laughs> that was almost as bad um, in terms of being able to uh, function with it on. Uh, but at least with the eyeball um, in the very front, in the, uh, the, the pupil, you know, there is black mesh. So that you, at least there's a small porthole um, that you can see out of, and um, you know you still can't hear very well. It's, it's breathing gets difficult after a while, uh, but at least it was a little more functional. An interesting sidebar to this is that we've worked so hard in, in terms of promoting 
with that, that people that don't really know very much think that the resident's performing those things all the time. And, uh, and the reality is it's impossible to perform in them, you know, except for maybe, you know, five or 10 minutes at a time. Uh, and so obviously there've been a lot of other different costumes that have been used that the, the eyeball and top hat has become the icon, no, no pun intended. Um, but, uh, a lot of other more functional costumes have been used uh, in performance. Yeah. I feel like it's so iconic that it's sort of almost, it's almost superseded the resonance. Like people know that image without even knowing where they seen it from. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people that, you, you, you know, you start talking about the residents and they go and they, and they get kind of a blank look on their face. And then you go, you know, their, their, their primary image is an eyeball at the top. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it, they've seen that and it registered with them, even though they might not have ever heard any music or if they did, they didn't know what it was. The popularity of the eyeball with the top hat as, a, uh, as an icon or a symbol for the residents really caught everybody off guard. Because they were ready to move on to the next thing after that, but but ultimately they could never really let go of it, uh, at least on some level. So because it was popular, it, it, it continued to get used. You know, even though you would use other things too, but that one would be a reoccurring one because of its popularity. Yeah, and and once again, the residents were ready to let it go a long, long time ago. But but Ralph Records saw the uh, <laughs> the usefulness of it from a marketing point of view. And, uh, and and ultimately, it just kept coming back around. Um, you know, there was there have been four different sets of eyeballs that have been made over the years, and the last set um, was done um, for their Wormwood album uh, and and tour, um, which at this point is twenty years ago. Uh, but those were referred to as the performance eyeballs and they were made out of a kind of mesh uh, and the thing about it is if you if you see them from a stage point of view it looks relatively solid but when you get up and look at one close it's actually like a screen or a mesh uh, so visibility with those is um, is actually fairly good I mean I mean people people performing in them well they get they get tired of them after performing for an hour, hour and a half, or two hours. But still, they were much more functional than the earlier ones. There was a point where it would start to be four eyeball guys and then also a fifth guy who had a black mask that was, like, positioned to be, like, the front person of the group. Well, I, I, that was that was like a... a a skull, black skull. That's what I meant, a black skull. Wasn't, yeah. wasn't the black skull actually to replace one of the masks that had been stolen? Yeah. What what happened was that um, the residents were performing right around the holidays in L.A. Um, uh, like 1985 or 86, I forget. And um, they were performing at what I think had been I don't know what they called it at that time. It had been um, the Hollywood Hollywood Palace, I think. And the interesting thing is, this was where Jerry Lewis um, did his TV show, I think, from this place. And the dressing room actually had had Jerry written in tile in the bat in the shower. 
Um, but it, it was like another one of these sort of old vaudeville kind of places. And a lot of those places will have like, when you go backstage, there'll be a spiral staircase that goes up for three or four flights or however big it is. And then, and then there are different dressing rooms off of that staircase as it goes up. So um, at the Hollywood Palace at that time, when you went up the first flight of stairs, there was the green room, you know, which is where you would meet and greet people after the show. And then the next floor up was the band's dressing room. So what happened was that after the show, um, everybody starts packing stuff up and one of the eyeballs just miss it. It disappeared. And it's like, you know, total freak out, you know, how could anybody get out with one of them? I mean, okay. So, so maybe somebody could go up that, that stairway, um, a spiral staircase, but at the same time, nobody's going to take that eyeball and stick it under their jacket and walk out the door. You know, how, how is it ever going to get out of there? Um, and so ultimately the residents decided, okay, well, that eyeball is now in mourning. And um, <laughs> the one that wore that one took a black skull, which, which was something that, that, that actually I had bought. Um, you know, it's kind of a long story. I don't want to get into it all, but I had gone to an auction um, of a place, a sign company that was going out of business. And there's some stuff that I wanted. And here are these two giant skulls sitting over in the corner. And when the auction came along for that, nobody wanted them. So I got these two skulls because they were cool for like, you know, 15 bucks or something. But one of the residents said, no, that, that's Mr. Skull now. He's the eyeball in mourning. And so all, <laughs> all the PR stuff changes. And instead of it being, you know, uh, four eyeballs, now it's three eyeballs and a black skull. And uh, Meanwhile, uh, a month goes by, six weeks go by, and um, Ralph Records gets this call from some guy who says, who says a friend, quote unquote, of his had stolen the eyeball and <laughs> he was going to steal it back from the friend and return it to the residence. And just by coincidence, um, he had been given uh, a pair, uh, a pair of plane tickets uh, from LA to San Francisco uh, for Christmas. And he was going to use those plane tickets to come with a friend to return the eyeball. Uh, and so sure as shit, the guy shows up, he's got the eyeball, uh, he turns it over. And at that point tells the story of how the friend, uh, as the green room thing was happening, he, the, the friend goes up into the dressing room, steals the eyeball. Then he goes up one more flight of stairs, finds another empty dressing room. He looks out the window and directly below is a debris box. So the guy just holds the eyeball out the window, drops it, walks out the door, goes around to the alley where the debris box is, takes the eyeball, <clears throat> and he has it. And um, if, if you needed any confirmation of that story, all you had to do was look at the eyeball and see a few cracks in the hat, you know, <laughs> where it had hit when it dropped <laughs> and hit in the debris box. So anyway, that's the that's the long and winding story of the uh, 
missing eyeball and the origin of uh, Mr. Skull. Not not to out the person who stole the eyeball, but uh, was that person someone known by the band? No. No, okay. Just some random looky-loo. Okay. Yeah. So in the early 80s with um, was when the Residents started performing live. And that's with, um, what was it called? The Mole, mole, the mole show? show. Yeah, right. The Mole Show. In a way, it kind of feels like this sort of begins a new era of Residents because it becomes this thing that you could actually see in person. And it's done in like a pretty theatrical way. I'm curious about the decision to to start becoming a live entity. What was that? What was that? Because in a way, some of the mystique of the residents was the fact that not only were the members anonymous, but you couldn't see them live. It was a thing that you would dig out the record and listen to. Well, you know, I think they always had interest in playing live, but they kind of felt like their sound that they had created was completely dependent upon the studio. Um, and the last thing that they wanted to do was go out and try to perform live and then disappoint their fans. And, and, and also at the same time, they were really quite content um, with what they were doing in the studio. Uh, you know, winding up with uh, that first 10 years or so with uh, Eskimo and commercial albums. But um, but ultimately, they just had a strong feeling that they wanted to play out, as they say. Uh, and what made that happen, what made that possible, was the, uh, you know, the advent of the uh, of samplers. Um, you know, the, the the first sampler that I mean, there had been samplers before. But I think they'd been, you know, Sinclaviers or whatever, and they cost twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars, and you know that wasn't going to happen with the residents. But ultimately, the uh, the emulator um, made by Emu Systems in Santa Cruz um, that was the first kind of easily. I mean, it still costs five thousand dollars, but it was the first kind of like easily accessible and relatively affordable sampler, and that then allowed them to, to create uh, some kind of facsimile of their studio sound. They, they could sample their, their tapes and then um, put those samples on floppy disks at the time and, uh, and, and play them back directly on a keyboard. And, um, and that was very exciting to them. And that's what really allowed them to, you know, f- from their point of view, to, to create a relatively faithful uh, rendering of their of their sound throughout the residents' career. You know they've they've sort of maintained an interesting um, juxtaposition in, in what they do. You know it's it's very artistic, but you guys but the residents embrace the business side of of art in an interesting way, and it's satirizes pop culture while also embracing it. What is the residents' feeling about the idea? of being a band because it seems like the residence is not a band and is a band at the same time. Well, and, and I think you're exactly right. Um, I mean, I feel like for them, for most of their career, they kind of feel like they have impersonated a band. And um, once again, this has as much to do with marketing as anything. I mean, you know, yeah, they, they may be a, an art collective, 
But, you know, how many art collectives are able to support themselves <laughs> off of doing their art? Um, it, I mean, it's a, it's a pure path to oblivion. Um, and you might, you might do great art down that path, but, but ultimately the residents always felt it was important to be able to, you know, pay, pay their bills and their alimony and child support, and, you know, all, all those kind of real world things. So, um, so ultimately they took kind of the Beatles as the ultimate prototype. And then that's why there, there's always, it was always four from the very beginning, because, you know, that was the ultimate stereotype band. Um, mm -hmm. but an, an interesting thing is about imitating a band and being a band at the same time. Um, one of the things that I like to tell, um, you know, for me, one of my favorite writers is Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and one of Vonnegut's lesser known books that is a favorite of mine is called Mother Night. And... Mother Night is, is the story of a guy uh, who was an American that lived in Germany. Uh, the Nazis came along. He went back to America. Uh, and then he gets recruited by the CIA because he knew German culture so well. He was recruited by the CIA to go back over there and be a spy. And um, so, but at the same time, he was then working for the Germans in this uh, spy kind of guise. Uh, but, but ultimately, he came to realize that his usefulness was more so for the Germans than it was for the Americans. <laughs> um, and Vonnegut tells you in the beginning, uh, in the forward to this, that, you know, the moral of this story is that you are what you pretend to be. So you should be very careful of what you pretend to be. And uh, what I feel like I have watched with the residents over the years is that they have pretended to be a band, but in, in the process over almost 50 years, they have actually become a band. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think they're actually a pretty good band at this point. Was there, was there a line where maybe they realized that they were a band or it became evident that they weren't just pretending? I don't know that there was so much of a, of a line exactly. Um, but it, it more came, I suppose, in, you know, not exclusively, but to a great extent for, for a lot of what the residents have done, uh, they've used timing tracks. Um, and even to the extent that I've, I've joked that certain uh, iterations of the residents were really residents karaoke, um, <laughs> but but more recently um, that they started um, using um, live live percussion, uh, which has made the whole group much more fluid in a way. Uh, in other words, just not locked down to a, a timing track of any kind. I mean, you know, when they, when they were using those emulators on the on the uh, the Mo show, a lot of times they would have a timing track or a per percussion track coming from one of those emulators that they would then play along with. Uh, so, I mean, in that way, uh, it's almost like they were some of the first DJs 
uh, in terms of you know taking timing tracks from another source and then uh, playing along with that. Yeah, and the sort of even even some of the like mashup art in a way. I feel like Pre- uh, Resonance did that. They even predated Negative Land in a way, if I'm not mistaken. Like with Third Reich and Roll, seems like a a version of that style of art. Third Reich and Roll was an, a really interesting experiment, and you know, um, recently there has been a guy um, in Seattle, a guy named Scott Coburn, who uh, has been remixing, I mean, uh, remastering all the Resonance tapes for this amazing uh, back catalog re-release series that Jerry Red has been doing, and. Um, he has he has even gone to the extent of going back to original eight track tapes and and digitizing um, all of those things. So um, I've actually listened to at, at this point the, the third Reich and Roll exists as four logic files, and you can actually go into that and and listen to um, each of those tracks individually. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's kind of fascinating. Uh, in, in a way, it's almost like time traveling. You, you go back and you, you start listening to this stuff and you hear them in the studio and, and all these weird kind of crazy things. But, you know, one of the, one of the tricks that they used to, to create stuff on the third rock and roll, once again, it's a, it's a timing track thing. And the songs that... And they didn't do this exclusively, but they did it on a certain number of songs. Most notably, um, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Um, and what they would do is they would play the song on one track of the of the eight-track uh, recorder. And then, then they would play along with that um, until they started getting something that they, yeah, well, that's kind of cool, yeah. And then, and then ultimately... When it came time to mix it, they would mix out the original track, and that which would just leave their bizarre interpretations or or additions to that. Uh, and you, you can really hear that on Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, because when it comes time for the horn section, they would mix in James Brown's horns. Uh, so, so the whole thing is just this weird mishmash of this uh, woman singing. Papa's got a brand new bag in German. Uh, and then it comes time for the horns. And it's exactly James Brown's horns. Uh, so anyway, like I say, they, they had a long history of using and working with timing tracks, which, which makes sense because this is the way they worked in the, in the studio anyway. Every, everything is set up to, to timing and overdubs. Wow, interesting. That's such an amazing way to think about recording like recording to something and then completely omitting that part. And then you're just left with all the other stuff. I love that. I, I just wanted to ask a little bit about one of the other things that was an entry point for me with the residents were the two CD ROMs, the freak show and bad day at the midway. I just was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the production of those. Once again, the residents have always had a very strong visual sense. I mean, I think from their point of view, they would have been equally productive in terms of film being filmmakers as as audio artists or or musicians or however you want to categorize it. 
Um, but but the problem was that it was just too expensive. Um, you know, Ralph Records didn't have the resources. Residence Records didn't sell well enough to be able to actually finance a, a, a film career in par- parallel to their recording career. Um, but when the CD-ROM uh, era came along, which was really kind of the early to mid-90s, um, they felt like they saw an opportunity there. And um, at that point, they were working on Freak Show. And the residents have had a lot of projects that they felt like easily could have been developed beyond just the music stage. And uh, and they had actually already found uh, a comic publisher that was interested in publishing a, a, a freak show comic. And so there, at that time, there was a relationship with um, the Voyager company. And Voyager uh, did a laser disc, if you can remember those. Uh, it was kind of like a resonance video of greatest hits. Um, but there was, there was a guy named Michael Nash who ultimately became a very good friend and a very strong supporter. And, um, Michael was working for, he was kind of running the laser disc division for Voyager at that time. And so, um, and, and CD-ROM people, a lot of people could see that CD-ROM was a coming thing. So, um, so the residents and, and Ralph approached Michael and Voyager from the point of view of doing a, a, a CD-ROM based on a freak show. And, uh, and they said yes, and, and, and came up with a huge budget of $5,000. Um, but th- that was at least enough to, to get it started. And um, they also connected with an incredible artist around that time, a guy named Jim Lutke who was a 3D artist, uh, who was very much into the, the resonance and right on that same uh, CD-ROM track. And so, um, you know, he Jim was the one who built the entire Midway. And then uh, they were able to work with a lot of other artists. They were use, able to use their um, the comic art from the Freak Show comic book as an element in it. Um, there were a lot of things that they were able to bring in and they, they brought Freak Show out and, and it was successful enough that they then attracted another company. Michael Nash by that time had moved on and had his own company, uh, a company called Inscape that was half backed by, I think half backed by Warner Music and half backed by HBO. So um, they were really interested in the residents' follow-up to Freak Show, which was Bad Day on the Midway. And uh, and they had a real budget to work with for the first time, maybe the only time, uh, which I think, I think maybe they had like $400,000 budget or something like that to do Bad Day on the Midway. And uh, brought Jim Ludke along. Uh, Jim's wife, uh, Sharon Ludke, was a producer. She produced that, and um, and they created a really great team. Um, 
to produce Bad Day on the Midway were extremely happy and ecstatic with the uh, final results. And the whole market for CD-ROM seemed to have crashed and burned like within, within six months after it came out. <laughs> uh, and ultimately everything then went to computer games and the whole idea of, of creating kind of like uh, story-based art form uh, based around CD-ROMs, um, that just kind of went away. Yeah. My, my main memory of, of playing Bad Day on the Midway was that it required so much processing power at a time where computers almost couldn't keep up with it. And so there was an added layer on top of already watching this really weird, you know, story and, and moving through this world where sometimes you'd get to a point and something would happen and it would crash your computer or things would freeze and chop up really weirdly and then start playing again. And there was times where you couldn't tell if it was part of the experience or if it was just (laughs) the computer glitching out. Um, It was, it really made the whole experience way more terrifying than, you know, (laughs) It probably was intended to be, um, but yeah, that was, I mean, it really made a huge impression on me. Yeah, it, it was a pretty flawed form in a lot of ways, but um, there was something very kind of addictive about it at the same time. Mm-hmm. It came out, you know, back in the day of, of Macworld, you know, which was this huge kind of Macintosh uh, computer fair, and, um, and Voyager had a booth there. And uh, so I went down a couple of times and, and demoed Freak Show for, for people and was just amazed at how people would get sucked into it. And I mean, you go back and look at it now and it's so incredibly primitive. I mean, you know, the, 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 the limitations of the technology were such then that, you know, the, the amount of screen space that you could uh, use for graphics was, you know, like the size of a postcard at most. Um, and it was all really kind of crude eight bit graphics or whatever, but, but still the world itself was very uh, kind of intriguing and compelling and people would really get sucked into it. Yeah. Around the same time, the, the mist game came to popularity and I felt yeah. like that, that had like a sort of a, there was a kind of a, for the first couple hours that you were playing it, you felt like, Oh, something is going to happen. And then it, you relax and realize that nothing's ever going to jump out at you. But then in the, in the residence, bad day at the midway, things would jump out at you and things <laughs> would happen. And then it also would tax your hard drive so hard that sometimes something would jump out and it would completely crash the system, <laughs> which was also terrifying. And it was, it was like the, like, you know, mist was like the, you know, the, the good, you know, lawful version of, of a CD-ROM game and then Bad Day at the Midway was this chaotic <laughs> thing that, that was there to terrify you. Yeah. Um, and then, and then you know, ultimately computer technology continued to develop at such a fast pace that ultimately by the year 2000, you couldn't play any of those on any machines. Yeah. Uh, everything was, was dated. Uh, 
you know, which is really too bad because they're 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 interesting things. Yeah, I I believe some of that stuff has been been archived and turned into to videos by fans that you can you can watch online. And I've been meaning meaning to do that, but part of me wants to just hang on to the memory of what it was like to play those games rather than delving into what what was actually intended because yeah. I worry sometimes that the magic would be ruined of some of those moments that have have really stuck with me. Um, yeah, and then I, I, I understand how that is. I, I, a lot of times, I prefer my memories to you know, <laughs> photos or whatever. It's like uh, the romance is much nicer. Right, right. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, even with you know, we you know, Aaron and I both you know became interested in the residents before the internet, and now now that the internet's there, there's all sorts of people who hypothesize about you know who the members are and and this and that and the other. I've abstained from looking at any of that because i don't want to know like to me that's not the interesting part pulling back the curtain is not interesting it's the sounds that are coming from behind the curtain that is interesting to me yeah i i agree completely it's like i've often compared to the the idea of who the residents are and and the mystery they have you know kind of self-consciously tried to build around that and and the revealing of the mystery it's it's like it's like a magician's trick you know it's only interesting if you know don't know what's going on as soon as you see what it is it's kind of you mean that's it you know um and you know you pull back the curtain and you see you know four ordinary looking people so what i mean what have you what have you gained (laughs) by doing that It's way more interesting to think of uh, four um, living eyeballs with top hats making this music. I recently watched um, Theory of Obscurity, and one of the things that I had not known was that there's there's a podcast series that the residents created. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, as as they have often done in the past, um, the residents. Uh, we're kind of running well ahead of the game in terms of doing a uh, paid podcast. Uh, and ultimately, once again, this same guy, Michael Nash, um, after his company, Inscape, it, you know, went under with, with all the rest of the CD-ROM stuff. Uh, he, he started, um, he, he was under contract to Warner Music. And so he, he then started a label um, that was like the idea was going to be a, a digital only label, no, no, uh, no product, real product, no LPs or CDs. So the residents had this idea of doing a, a, a podcast based on true crime and, uh, and, and ultimately did it as uh, five 15 minute episodes. And it's called uh, the River of Crime, and the whole idea behind it is you have this guy who's the protagonist; he's the storyteller, and his point of view is that he's a crime magnet, and um, he doesn't. Uh, he says he's not a criminal. Of course, he's, he's shady enough. Maybe you wonder, but um, he says he's not a criminal, but somehow or other. Crimes come to him, and so each each of the stories, each of the podcast episodes, is him telling about um, one of these crimes, which is then based on a true crime. 
uh, that he was kind of peripherally involved in. You know, and the residents scored the whole thing. I mean, they, they were into like, you know, what, what at the time was kind of referred to as crime jazz, which is kind of like, you know, sound, soundtracks from film noir movies. Uh, and uh, so they, they, they kind of scored it along those lines. And, you know, they got a, a cast of, I don't know, half a dozen people in the studio and they recorded it. Uh, and, I, you know, I thought the results were really pretty good. But the problem was that Apple, who, who was pushing podcast, but, but really Apple was only pushing podcasts from the point of view of selling uh, iPods. They, they, they didn't see any money to be made out of the actual uh, podcast. There was money to be made out of iPods. So the only way the, the thing could be available was like to list it as an album on iTunes. And so you could listen to it that way, but otherwise it hardly got any exposure. And you, you could download each of the 15-minute episodes as like a song or a track from the River of Crime album. Which was all really uh, disappointing because it was it was a pretty cool, pretty cool project. Interesting. So, okay, I just want to ask one more question since we're a ska podcast. I just have to ask if the residents like ska. Uh, you know, honestly, I've never really heard um, the residents particularly mention ska that much. Uh, I know they've listened to all kinds of music. Uh, but I, I can't say I've ever remember uh, being partial to a conversation about it. All right, oh. <laughs> that's fine. What about what about you, Homer? Do you do you like ska? Yeah. What about you? No, I, honestly, I've never really listened to it that much either. Um, you know, my my listening, my, my favorite stuff. If there was one person uh, as a composer and musician uh, that I was going to have to listen to the rest of my life on a desert island, it would probably be Ennio Morricone. Um, I absolutely love Ennio Morricone, and maybe second place would be Moondog. Uh, I'm pretty crazy about Moondog, too. Um, so um, my, my taste has to run more those directions, I'll put it that way. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Ska. You can also sign up for my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you.
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.